All right, everybody, we are going to go ahead and get started. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with us to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. We, we aspire to finish the chapter today. We, we may or may not. We're not 100% sure, but we, we, will, we will see what we, we'll see how far we can get today on, on Revelation chapter 13. Obviously, I, I think a fascinating chapter, uh, no matter how you look at it, and uh, a, a challenging chapter to us as we live uh, in, in the world that we live in before Christ returns. Um, Papa Fred. Sir. How are you, sir? I am great. That is good to hear. Can you open us in prayer, and then we will we'll do a little bit of review from some things we've talked about previously, and then try to move into the new territory today. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to, um, to pull back the curtain uh, on your divine plan from the beginning. You know, this is not Satan's plan. This is uh, your plan. And you pull back the, the curtain so we can see what's going on. And we saw a little bit, and we got a preview of coming attractions in Daniel with uh, the, uh, the spiritual warfare that's taking place in the heavenly places and manifested in, in earthly kingdoms. But now, uh, 13 introduces, not introduces, but uh, the, the beast is the central character or characters in this chapter, and uh, an opponent, an enemy of Almighty God, and uh, help us to understand what's going on, help us to explain it, and give us insight and wisdom through your Spirit today, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So hold your spot in chapter 13 and turn to the very first verse of Revelation again. I keep feeling almost every week that because we're giving a slightly not maybe the traditional Southern Baptist approach to Revelation, that we can't repeat some of these things too often. So I'll, I'll keep, wanting, I keep wanting to make these things clear. The very first verse of Revelation is important because it tells you something about how to interpret the whole book. So look at uh, the very first verse again of Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John. Now, one of the things that we have been arguing, uh, we'll continue to argue, is that we should interpret Revelation not with the newspaper of this week or this month or this year in one hand and the Bible in the other, but we should be reading it with the book of Revelation in one hand and the Old Testament in particular in the other hand. And the Old Testament should be our grid that helps us interpret the book of Revelation. And this first verse, do you remember, there are four different words or phrases, four different words or phrases, that's a lot in one verse that echo back to Daniel chapter 2, which we won't turn to right now, but you've got the word revealed or revelation. You've got the things that God will show to His servant, the things that will take place soon, and the idea of it being made known to His servant. These four phrases come from Daniel 2, verses 28 and through 30 and 45, basically the Nebuchadnezzar statue story, remember, with the four different kinds of metals that we've talked a lot about. And the, the, what we're getting at is Dan, John is telling us the book he's about to write is very similar to what we see in Daniel chapter 2. What we see in Daniel chapter 2 that is revealed, that is shown to his servant, that is given to him about things that are going to take place, the same language here, what is it? It is a highly symbolic vision that relates to kingdoms and the future kingdom of God and how the world is going to go until the Son of Man comes and the whole world becomes the kingdom of God. 
And so Revelation 1 is signaling that symbolism is going to be prominent in the book of Revelation. And I have not mentioned this yet. This comes from a, a, a writer named Vern Poitras, who's written a commentary on Revelation. Tom Schreiner has also mentioned the same thing, but it comes from Vern Poitras. And here's this idea. See if you've ever thought about this before. There are really four levels that are going on when you interpret Revelation. Four levels. The first two are simple, and it gets a little tricky, so just follow me here. Level number one is obvious. It's just what John wrote in the book. So it's just obvious. It's the words of the text, what John wrote. That's level number one. That's easy. Level number two is what John wrote in the book, level number two, is based on what John saw in these supernatural visions that God gave him. John saw that, you know, there's a, there's a door in heaven. He was taken up. He saw. He saw a city. He saw uh, this and that. So what he wrote is level one. Level two is what he saw in his visions. Level number three is, now this is where it gets a little tricky. Level number three is how the objects in his visions sometimes correspond to and symbolize things that are happening at the very moment that John writes, Okay. I'm going to give you an example in a second to flesh this out. So, level number three, some of the objects in his vision symbolize things happening directly in John's own day, in the day of these seven churches that he's writing to. Then, level number four are how these objects and visions that he sees symbolized in his visions not just refer to things going on in his own day, but also symbolize things that are going to be going on throughout all of church history all the way until you get to the return of Christ. Everybody got that? So, you got what he wrote? which is based on what he saw, which often symbolizes things in his own world when he wrote, and then also those things symbolize things that go on throughout the entire church period until Christ returns. To give one concrete example, you can turn back to chapter 13. We'll use the first verse of chapter 13 to give one example of this four-level idea. Let me read verse 1 of Revelation 13 again. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Okay, we just read level number one, what he wrote. He wrote about a beast. Level number two, what do you think he saw in the vision? He saw a beast. I mean, he saw an actual beast coming up out of water with seven heads and ten horns. I have no doubt that his vision was a literal beast coming up out of the water. But is this about a literal future animal that's going to attack the world? Hopefully, no. That's not the answer, right? So, level number three, that beast corresponds and symbolizes to something in John's own day. What does the seven-headed, ten-horned beast represent in John's day? What empire? Rome, right? It represents the Roman Empire. If you don't believe that, just look at chapter 17 just for a second. Maybe we'll come back to this chapter on a later day. But if you look at chapter uh, 17, we know it's the same beast because if you look at verse 7, it says, but the angel said to me, This is Revelation 17, 7. Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Now, do you see that's the same beast? Seven heads, ten horns. And look at verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads of this beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Now, the seven mountains on which the beast is seated, the woman is seated, it's, it's Rome. Rome is the city of seven hills. It's, the, it's, it's been known throughout history as the city of seven mountains or seven hills that the city was built upon. So to say that this beast corresponds to the seven-hilled uh, place is to say that this beast most immediately represents and symbolizes Rome. But here's my question. Are we to believe that the beast is Rome throughout all of church history all the way up until the return of Christ? 
Is it Rome that's in power all the way until Christ returns? No, Rome is dead and gone in that sense. But are there new beasts that are appearing on the scene? Does one beast receive a mortal wound and die, and does another rise to take its place? Have there been lots of totalitarian states throughout human history other than Rome? Yes, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you've got all the ones we've mentioned, like the Hitlers and the, and the Joseph Stalins and on and on. So there's always a new beast appearing on the scene, and we believe there will be a final beast that is a final appearance at the end that is going to be led by, I know some people think you're, you're, you're one of those crazy people, but I believe in a literal human being who is going to be the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, who will be uh, in control and in power when that final beast appears on the scene. And so... Uh, the four levels, John wrote about a beast. It's because number two, he saw a beast. Number three, that beast is a symbol for something in his own day, Rome. But level number four, Rome symbolizes the beast throughout human history beyond Rome. That's why we call it Rome and beyond. That fourth beast represents all totalitarian governments all through human history leading all the way until the final one when the Antichrist appears. Now, if that does that make some sense, that, that, that framework of, of how, to, how to take that? Yeah, and Papa. actually, we saw that in Daniel. It was, yes. This was introduced with Nebuchadnezzar's statue uh, and, and uh, the four empires, which included Rome, but Rome and beyond, and then the, the big stone, which is Christ, comes and breaks the statue. But that's the terminus, the end. Uh, but there is a Rome and beyond. Now, that can... This, well, we've, we've, Mark's mentioned it, and just in the 20th century alone, we've got a war raging in Ukraine um, with, with Vladimir Putin. I, I just read uh, the Gulag Archipelago. Wow. And man, that's, that's a heavy, it, it's so, so depressing, but it's an expose of well, what... Just what it, explain quickly what, what that is. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an officer or a soldier in the, in the Russian army and uh, was convicted uh, wrongly of some misdoing and went, went to prison for this. Gulag. Gulag. And, and in this book, he exposes all the Russian prison system. He goes back to the Bolshevik re re uh, Revolution in the first part of the 20th century, and uh, it's horrible. In fact, you can't read it very long without getting just flat repressed. So this depressed, and this is, this is what human beings do to other human beings. And, and this, is, this is an example, the personification of evil, which still exists in the Soviet Union. We've got a war going on right now with a, uh, Vladimir Putin, who is a type of beast that is trying to get his own way, make his own name. And remember, we've argued that Revelation is so different from most books in the Bible. Why does it use such almost comic book type language, you know, like, like, like the exaggerated beast-like imagery. It's almost like a, you're reading some sort of comic book sort of thing. Why does it do that? It's so different from reading 2 Thessalonians. It deals with the same issues, but from a more, uh, more direct way. Why does it use this pictorial symbolic language? And the answer is, it's to awaken our conscience to the horror of what's going on. So often what has a veneer of beauty on the outside is actually monstrous and evil underneath. And what Revelation is doing is it's ripping the calluses off our eyes so that what looks oftentimes pretty, like the Roman Empire looks so sophisticated and wonderful on the exterior way. It's kind of like the, 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 the tree. The Pax Romania, you know, yeah. we, we talk about a lot of times. Yeah, the, the Roman peace and the Roman roads and the system of, of stability that they had brought, it looks so beautiful. And yet it's considered, it's, it's described as a, as a whore drunk on the blood of the martyrs on top of a seven-headed beast. 
in Revelation 17. That's, that's meant to shock us, to show us what looks so, so beautiful on the outside is actually repugnant to God on the inside. And we need to have, like, worldliness is getting tricked into thinking what the world says is right, what the world values is right. So money and power and beauty, that's what makes things good and wonderful. But God is saying so often those things underneath are corrupt morally, and they're actually like this drunk prostitute on the back of a beast. It, it is this disgusting thing. So Revelation is meant to, to open our eyes to the kind of horror of what we, of what we see. Papa? Uh, beast uh, is used 124 times in the Bible, but only in Revelation. It's normally man and beast, uh, any non-human uh, beast. Uh, only in Revelation and Daniel is it referred to specifically as evil, the personification of evil. And it's, uh, in this chapter 13 alone, it's 17 times beast is mentioned. So it is evil, identified with evil. One commentator defines it, it's on the screen here, uh, in this way. It's a long definition, but I think it's helpful. The beast represents and symbolizes every human authority and everything of the human nature that the dragon, that Satan, can corrupt and control and use in his warfare against the woman, that's the church in chapter 12, and her seed, that's individual Christians, whether it be political, governmental, social, economic, philosophical, and educational systems, as well as individuals. So this first beast represents uh, authority structures, political, governmental, social, economic, philosophical, educational, whatever it may be that the devil is trying to use and manipulate for his own uh, purposes. Tom Schreiner, who's one of my favorite New Testament commentators, defines the beast this way. The beast is not confined to the Roman Empire. It refers to Rome, but applies also to every manifestation of evil in all governments throughout history and also to the final conflict to come at the end. And Schreiner adds these words, all totalitarian governments arrogating to themselves, or in other words, claiming unrightfully, arrogating, taking to themselves a divine authority, and it reveals that they too are the beast. So when totalitarian governments claim what is only God's for themselves, they are in that moment uh, functioning as the beast. Now, how does this change Paul's definition of, of uh, the government and our responsibility in Romans? Yes, and we only got to mention this briefly last week. But remember, government is good. Government has been instituted by God, and it has a purpose from God. So remember, if you put Genesis 9 and Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, but let's just take Genesis 9 and Romans 13. You put those together, you see that in Genesis 9, this is, okay, this is not part of the Mosaic law. This comes way before the law of Moses in Israel. Okay? This is given to Noah, so this still applies today. Just like the rainbow, it goes right with the rainbow promise that God would not destroy the earth with a flood uh, again. But in, in Genesis 9, it says, uh, if, a, if, anyone, if any man takes the blood of man or sheds the blood of man, in other words, takes human life, by man shall his blood be shed, for man is made in the image of God. In other words, this is the beginning of the real institution of government, that, that government is meant to protect innocent life, and those who unlawfully take human life, they are going to be held accountable by the government. That's the, that's the Genesis nine principle. That spans all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to Romans 13, and you know that passage, but let's just turn to it for a second because I don't want to minimize the valid place of government like uh, Fred is hinting at here, which I think is very significant. So Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is, listen, for he is the government here. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And it goes on. So when government is doing what God has called it to do, which is punishing evil and rewarding what is truly good, when the government is defending the innocent life and it bears the sword which has been given by God to it, that is completely legitimate. That's what it's supposed to do. But we need to balance Romans 13 because that's not, listen, isn't it so easy? We take one text about what the Bible says about something and we almost make it the only text about what the Bible says about something and we end up misconstruing something. So Romans 13 is true, but we need to balance Romans 13 with Revelation 13. Those should be easy to remember, right? The two R's with the 13. So Romans and Revelation 13, these two should should be read together. Uh, Romans 13 is showing you how the government should be. Revelation 13 shows you how oftentimes totalitarian governments are corrupted and are not functioning the way that God has called them to be. Instead, they are taking the very place of God and demanding worship uh, for God. Papa? Uh, I mean, that's, that's... That, I'm glad we delineated that because I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that governments are always going to be good. No. Uh, Solzhenitsyn endured this prison system of, of the Soviet Union, which still exists. The gulags still exist today, uh, and, and it's a horrible condition. But they're, they're not alone. They're just one of the beasts. Okay, let's pick up with where we are. We'll continue through 13. Verse 2, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power uh, and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? You know, I can't help but think, I, I just saw one again today, and I've seen, one, I've seen these repeatedly. You know how sometimes a celebrity will, will say something that goes against the, 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 the sort of uh, the, um, the LGBT agenda today? The, 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 a celebrity will say something against it. And maybe they'll say women, biological women are, are the only true women, or biological men are true men, or something like that. They'll tweet that. And then what happens? There is a backlash like you would not believe. And suddenly, the, say the musician who wants to sell this new album that's coming out. I was just watching this on, what is it, Good Morning America this week. Uh, an artist uh, was, was putting out an album, and she had tweeted that biological women are women, basically, and that went against the transgender movement. And so guess what? She got just destroyed on social media. People came after her with a vengeance. So what did she have to do on this past, I don't know what day it was? She goes on Good Morning America, and she confesses her sins of saying what was actually true. And she says, listen, you know, this has been a learning experience for me. I, you know, I, I regret what I said. You know, I think that being a woman is a vibe. What? Because you can't attach womanhood oh. to biology, right? Because then that would ruin the transgender movement. So you have to say, being a woman, is, she said, it's a vibe. Being a woman is a vibe. And she said, I have that vibe. And maybe if someone else has that vibe, even if they're a biological man, they could be a woman too. Now, you understand, she know, you know the rules. The rules are, if you go against the beast, you're going to get tread underfoot. 
So if you want to have a successful career and you want to thrive economically in this culture, what do you have to, you have to say, listen, who can fight against the beast? Who can survive if you assault the beast? You're going to be trampled underfoot. So if you want to keep your career and you want to keep your recognition and your fame and your status, you've got to worship the beast. You've got to do it. And uh, again, let me read verse four one more time. They worshiped the dragon for he had given its authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and what? Who can fight against it? It's futile. We will lose if we try to fight against this thing. You mentioned um, in point number three, objects sometimes symbolize events in, in John's own life. An example of that, they had, a, uh, they had these guilds in, in Asia Minor. And if you weren't part of the guild, which included emperor worship sometime yep. or some uh, authentication by the guild, you couldn't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it wasn't just, this is first century, and what we're talking about is today. That's right. So well, Let's keep going. Verse uh, 5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, I keep saying this. We believe that 42 months or three and a half years symbolizes the church age, and you can look back maybe at previous Sundays if you want to hear the arguments for, for why we believe that. Verse 6, It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I liked your, you want to run quickly over Tulip again? (laughs) I I listened to that and I was blown away. I was out of town. Well, that that thought was not original to me, but but I got that from someone else. But but yeah, you see here a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty. So the, the idea is, God has written his elect in the, in the Lamb's book of life, and the Lamb has secured the salvation of his own by his death and resurrection. And so no matter how bad the assault is against us, I mean, look at verse 7. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. No matter how bad it gets against the church, whether right now or at some point in the future, will God's true sheep ever fall away? No. Will God's elect ever perish? No. Will their names actually be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life? No, because God in His sovereignty has written them there, and the Lamb has purchased them with His blood, and they will endure faithfully to the end. So we have great comfort in the sovereignty of God when this moment of of real serious trial uh, comes upon the earth. Well, you know, I I go back to, this reminds me of Daniel 7 again, and I go back to verse 25. It says, He shall speak words against the Most High. Who does that sound like? and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his time for time, times, and half a time. That's yes. just what we're reading right now. Yes, that's the same exact period spoken of there. So now we want to move into some new territory. This is the, the beast we barely got to mention last week. This is the second beast. The first beast comes from the sea. Look at verse 11. The second beast comes from the land. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, Look at this. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
I think that just that verse is unbelievably helpful in trying to understand what is going on here. So this second beast does not come from the sea like the others. It comes out of the earth, out of the land. And this beast, here's how it's characterized. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, do you hear? This, is, this beast represents false religion. It looks like the lamb. It mimics Jesus in some way. It has two horns like a lamb. It, it looks Christ-like in some sense, but it turns out to be anti-Christ-like. It, it looks like the lamb, but it speaks with the voice of the, with the dragon. It's got a prophetic role, too. Yes. It makes people want to worship the beast. Yes, it, it supports the other beast. So people have often, have y'all heard the, the, the unholy trinity from Revelation? Have you heard that phrase? Uh, people sometimes say it kind of as a joke, but I really do think there's an unholy trinity here. So the dragon, Satan, is, is sort of like the anti-God the Father, and the first beast is sort of like the anti-God the Son, and this third beast, who's also called the false prophet, who supports the second, is like an unholy spirit. He, remember, the Holy Spirit came to glorify Jesus. He was meant to point all attention to Jesus. And also uh, to, to, to testify to truth. Right. What, what does this guy do? He's Lies. testifying to what is not true. That's right. That's right. So, so the third beast supports the second, uh, excuse me, the second beast supports the first. So he looks like the lamb, but he speaks like the dragon. Now, this, this animal does, okay, you remember we talked about four levels? The third level is what it meant in John's day immediately, and then the fourth is what it means throughout all history right? That distinction. In John's day, most people think this is referring to the imperial Roman priesthood. In other words, in the cities where these churches had written letters, let, let, let me show you. T turn back to Revelation 2. I'll show you a little sample of what I'm talking about. In John's own day, there were local religious authorities, and they tried to use both persuasion and deception, along with power and coercion, to get everyone to worship the Roman gods, the Roman pantheon that you were describing. And look at chapter 2, because the church at Smyrna it gets persecution from this. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9, the church in Smyrna. Jesus says to the church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are, and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, now, do you hear? Do you hear that? Synagogue sounds like the lamb, doesn't it? A religious institution that reads the Old Testament. Synagogue sounds like the lamb. But how do they speak? They speak with the voice of the dragon. It's a synagogue of Satan. And you say, wait a second. This is anti-Semitism. What is going on here in the Bible? No, 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 no. The guy writing this, first of all, the guy speaking is Jesus. He's not an anti-Semite. He is a Jew. He chose to come into the world as a lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a Jew. Secondly, John, who's writing this down, is a Jew. He doesn't hate the Jewish race. He is from the Jewish race. What he's describing is this particular synagogue had rejected Jesus as Messiah, and what were they doing? Well, it looks like they were persecuting the Christians. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So wait a second. Something about the Jewish synagogue is leading to their suffering. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let me tell you what I think is going on here in the background. This does relate to our subject. This is the beast from the land. This synagogue here is acting like the dragon, but looks like the lamb, right? You know, this is almost, it's a, it's a bit of a guess, but it's almost certainly what's going on. You remember in Roman law, there was only one religious group out of all the Roman Empire that was not forced by law to worship the Roman gods. It was the Jewish people. Yeah. 
Remember, they, had, they, they were called a, uh, they, they were given a religious license to not worship the Roman gods. Now listen, for the first decades of Christian history, Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism. In other words, if Jewishness was the umbrella that protected you from worshiping the Roman gods, right? So all the different, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees, all the zealots, they were underneath that umbrella. Christianity was first seen as a sect of Judaism, which meant what? Christians were initially protected, protected from not worshiping the Roman gods legally. Does that make sense? They were considered underneath Judaism, and they were considered uh, legal to not worship the Roman gods. That was in AD 30. Now this is being written in AD 90-something. So a lot of years have gone by, and you know what's happened? The Jewish people in every city start saying, the Christians are not with us. Those Christians are not Jews. Get them out of here. They should not be protected by Roman law. This starts happening, right? And you see glimmers of it in the book of Acts, by the way, the same thing happening in, in Acts. And so what happened was the synagogue of Satan, the Jewish people rejecting Jesus, they turned to the church and said, hey, Roman officials, those guys are not allowed to not worship the Roman gods. They're not Jews. They're a different group. They're called Christians. You need to either make them worship Roman gods or throw them in jail. That's why they're being called a synagogue of Satan. They are acting like the lamb, but they are speaking like the dragon, and they are persecuting uh, the believers. Look at chapter 3 of Revelation. The same thing happens to the church in Philadelphia. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance uh, I will keep it from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world on, to, the, to try those who dwell on the earth. So you see here again, the, the, the beast from the land is using false religion, false ideology, false teaching to undermine and deceive Christians and to get them to fall away from their faith in Jesus. And anytime we see that today, whether it's happening in a public school, whether it's happening through a false, you know, a, a, non, a, a false church you know, that's out there preaching this way or another religion that denies Jesus, whatever it may be. It might be a biased news media source that's trying to promote the virtues of, uh, of, the, of abortion or whatever going on. This is all masking what is actually evil in a veneer of what appears to be righteous and good. They look like the lamb, they talk like the lion. They speak about compassion and love, but truly they are a synagogue of Satan or whatever it may I think, be. I think you're using the term deception. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's, we're called in um, uh, verse 10 here, here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. And he did the same thing in, in, in chapter 3 of Revelation, called for endurance and patience and, and perseverance of the saints. And we're going to expect that, anticipate that. Yes, and... I know some people could think that what I'm about to do is being harsh. I, I do not think, I'm, I'm not trying to be harsh. Uh, I'm trying to deal with what is right in front of us. These issues are coming at us, and to close our eyes is to be unwise. So just so you know, so my, my wife and I, our kids, we went to the athens Clark County Library this past, I guess it was a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago, and uh, this was the display in the children's section of the athens Clark. So first of all, you, you walk into the library. This is not the children's section. This is when you walk in. This is the main section. You see, you see this here, and there's a bunch of LGBT books that are listed on that bookshelf. But then when you get to the children's section, here's, here's what you see. Wow. Oh, you got it up there. <laughs> yes, I've, I've, got, I've got it up on the screen here. Okay. And um, this is, again, this is targeted for like my kids and your kids. Okay, so, so we're, all these four-year-olds are walking around with my kids in the room. There's a bunch of them, and they're walking underneath this display. And uh, I mean, there was a family just under this picture to the left. I mean, there's, there's kids everywhere, and this is what you see on the wall. Now, I'm gonna, some of you are going to think, oh, th he's lost it. Uh, that, that Mark guy is, is losing his mind right now. I'm telling you, 
I don't think I am. You're going to say, this guy's a Bible-thumping wingnut. Okay, fine, that's fine. I'll take the title. I'm okay with that, actually. This is the voice of the beast from the land. This is the ideological false belief system deceiving you with lies that are masked in what looks like the lamb but is the voice of the dragon. That's this right here in athens Clark County Library. And I'm not saying we go there and burn the place down, okay? This is not one of those like, respond with violence. No, we respond with martyrdom, right? We respond with turning the other cheek. We respond with love. We don't retaliate. We don't seek vengeance. But here's what I'm telling you. Because our kids, I was talking to the Vandalins about this last week at their house, but like our kids are going into this library and I'm sure we're going to go there to see stuff, you know? We walk in there and they're doing story time and what's going to be read? I don't know necessarily, but we're walking into this environment. Do we as parents, and I know some of you have older children, it's a little different, but like do we as parents need to be ready for this? Absolutely. It is irresponsible not to know how to handle this or not to know what to do with this. We're not going to be able to change what all parents are teaching in every home in Athens. But we can affect what is happening in, these, in our homes here in this church. That's our responsibility. I, I can't go force someone else to believe something else, but we can talk here from the biblical perspective what we are to do. And just looking at, this, at looking at the screen here. Um, this is a synagogue of Satan. Right. In our right. backyard, in your backyard. Yes. And like if you zoom in here a little bit here, there, there's this book that says this is our rainbow, that, that book right, uh, right there. This is our rainbow. So I just, I looked it up on Amazon. I thought, what is this book? So I just look it up on Amazon. And here's just from the review on that book. This is our rainbow features story after story of joyful, proud LGBTQA plus representation. You will fall in love with the, this insightful, poignant anthology of queer fantasy. So that is, that is for the four to eight-year-olds uh, right there on, on the bookshelf. How about the Oconee County Library? Hank, uh, you sent this to me maybe a month ago. This was on the o Watkinsville Library uh, right where I grew up, uh, down the street from my parents' house. Uh, and they were having for, for June, you know, it's Gay Pride Month. And so they had a pride party there on June 8th uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. for grades what? Grades 6 through 12 uh, is who that was targeted for. And that happened uh, last month there. Now, let, let me, again, I know some people, are, what are you doing? We've got to talk about this stuff. We've got to. The, the point here is not we're so much better than them. We're so, no, no, no. The no, point no. is we've got to be prepared for the onslaught that is actually coming for our children. It's not a joke. It's not a lie. In fact, well, I'll save some comments for another day. But let, I want to show you uh, something else here. We, we mentioned this a year ago. I'm not even going to name the church right now because I don't feel the need to do that. But it has the word Baptist in its title. It's an Athens. It's a church in Athens. Uh, this is on their website. I, I checked again this morning to make sure it's still there. Uh, this came out. They put this on their website a little over a year ago. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it says, The members of Blank Baptist Church believe in the love of God for all persons, and we believe that inclusion is central to the gospel call to love. Do you hear the voice that looks like the lamb using the words inclusion and love? But the, like dragon. It's about to be the voice of the dragon. Look at, look at the next sentence. We are committed to providing equal access and participation in all facets of the life and ministry of our church, including but not limited to membership, baptism, ordination, marriage, teaching, staffing, and leadership without regard to ethnicity. Well, of course, that's fine. Uh, culture, sexual orientation, or gender expression. So now this is not a Southern Baptist church. This is a different kind of Baptist denomination, okay? But, but it's a far more liberal, as you can see. But still, you, you see here, that, that's what they say. And then here's, this is the part that just almost makes you want to weep. When I first saw it, I started to laugh. And then I stopped and thought about what's happening. I went back and rewatched it this morning because Zach Petty uh, sent it to me. I asked him for it. Uh, it. It almost made me cry this morning because, and I won't show the video. It has children in it. You don't need to see who the children are. But in this same church, which is not that far down the road from here, 
they did a children's moment in the service. It's on the live stream. They do it several times. I've seen it. There's more than one Sunday they've done this. They bring all their little kids. Their kids are like our kids' age. They're like five-year-olds, six-year-olds. And these boys and girls sit on the front steps of the stage. And the, the female associate pastor comes out and she sits the children down and she gets them to repeat after her this prayer. I'm not kidding. I look at you and the kids say, I look at you. I look at me. I look at me. I celebrate what I see. Because God made all the smooth and rough, no matter what, we're good enough. Amen. That's wow. the prayer. That's the prayer that is said. And the children are all kind of smiling, and the people in the choir loft are smiling, and they send the kids back to their seat. Here's my point. Looks like a lamb has the voice of the dragon. Did God really say that if you eat from that tree, you will not, you will not die? You will surely not die. The, the dragon always sounds so compassionate, doesn't he? You'll be just like God. You'll, you'll, be, you'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll be exalted in your status. You'll have this incredible wisdom you didn't have before. Look how delicious that fruit looks. It's incredible. This is going to bless you. It's going to make your life better. And what comes beyond that is death. That, that's what comes from that, death and destruction. But it, it, it speaks one way, and then it turns out to be a completely different kind of voice in the end. Papa? Wow. Um, I think we probably, you want to move on here? Yeah, we can keep going. <laughs> I mean, th this this is blasphemy. Yes. Against a holy and righteous God. Yes. Speaking of blasphemy, I, I've got this. This is the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, one of the comment uh, commentaries mentioned um, Richard Dawkins, and if you guys know who Richard Dawkins is, he's a probably the, one of the more celebrated atheists in the world on the staff at Oxford University and regularly debates uh, John Lennox and Alistair McGrath. This is Alistair in his wife's book, The Dawkins Delusion, um, a critique of his God's, uh, Dawkins' God's Delusion book. Now, I'm not going to pronounce all these words properly because they're not <laughs> my vocabulary normally. This is the God that Dawkins does not believe in. Mm. He's petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's Dawkins describing the God of the Bible. That's correct. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah, that, there's no question. That, that is a very direct, obvious example of the voice of the beast speaking in that, in that regard. T turn with me real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to show you another text that goes along these same lines. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now here's Paul speaking without all the apocalyptic symbolism, just speaking very directly as he often does in his letters. 2 Corinthians 11, look, look at what Paul says here. It's describing again the same beast from the land, the religious beast. Uh, verse, chapter 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, through your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit 
from the one you received. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, he says, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. These are false teachers. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made plain to you uh, all these things. Look down at verse, verse 13. He's speaking of the false teachers, and listen to how he describes them. It sounds like Revelation uh, 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as what? Apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Do you hear that? Let me read that part again. Look, look, at, look at the end of 13. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Looks like the lamb, has two horns like the lamb, and it has the voice of the dragon. This is the exact same thing in Paul's letter. They disguise themselves as those who support Jesus, but they're actually like Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. I mean, you know, how rare is it that a false teacher shows up in the church and says, I'm about to sell you a, a bunch of nonsense. I'm going to tell you a bunch of unbiblical satanic nonsense, and it's, it's going to absolutely destroy your life if you believe it. I mean, do people try that? That's not going to work. What they do is they say, I'm going to tell you something that's going to really improve your life. This is going to make everything so much better. Oh, man, I've got this positive, uplifting message. Come hear what I have to say. And before long, uh, there's a deception going on. There's another Jesus, a different spirit, and, and a different gospel that is being presented. But how horrible is it to, in your library example? I mean, the enemy is going after children mm -hmm. uh, to deceive. To, to children. And, and that's why parents need to be more vigilant, more alert than ever before in what they expose their families to. Uh, we talked about, uh, we, have, we won't have time today, but get to the mark of the beast. And I think about Deuteronomy 6, what it talks about is, is uh, ingesting the word day, night, when you sleep, when you walk, mm -hmm. when you, to your children, on the doorpost of your homes, uh, we need to do that, and, and that's one of our defenses against this evil. I completely agree. If you're still in 2 Corinthians, look back one chapter to chapter 10, and you see a similar idea of this battle of what we believe. Look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raise, uh, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And he says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. But you, you hear that here. Our, our weapons of warfare are the Spirit's weapons. This is God's word and God's truth, and we use the weapons of our warfare. To destroy, divine, to destroy strongholds and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God in order to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we want to know God's Word so well that we are not easily going to be tricked or deceived into believing what is not true, and so that we can also rescue others from perishing and, and, and showing them the falsehoods that are out there so that they can come to believe uh, what, is, uh, what is true. Papa? 
But we will be persecuted. I think that's, right. again, what, what uh, Revelation is telling us. Daniel said, said the same words. But we will be persecuted. But uh, God has sealed us. We know that. And, and for this struggle and for this fight. And the fight is not with each other. It's, it's with the enemy and, and this deception. And the better we know the word, the better we associate with fellow believers, the, the more we pray. Uh, the better we're able to endure to the end. And, and, and like Mark mentioned, and, and with uh, Tulip, I mean, you know, we are, we are protected. We are sealed. But it's going to be a fight. That's good. All right, we're going to go ahead and close now. Uh, we will save the Mark of the Beast for next Sunday. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that next week. Lord willing, Papa, can you close us in prayer? Father, thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really appalled by this. I don't... We don't have young children right now, and, and, and just to, to hear or to see visibly on the screen what's available and what's out there is just astonishing. Um, I, I remember reading somewhere, Lord, about some drag queen book hour in Manhattan or something like that, and, and uh, this, is, this is very similar. Uh, Lord, protect us from this. Uh, ground us in your word. Uh, ground us in community in, in, a, in a church like North Avenue where we can openly talk about issues such as this and how we can protect our family and lead our family in these very difficult days. Lord, we, we, we can't do this alone, and we need your spirit. We need, we need your help. And so I, I pray, Lord, for your, your guidance and your strength and your power to, to be overcomers. In Jesus' name, amen.